we are hoping to show you just what is possible out there in our strange and wondrous world. One of the dogs started to howl. Almost immediately, all 400 dogs that were there started to howl along with it. We travel for business. We travel for pleasure. The conditions can change so quickly and it became very challenging to maneuver that kayak. We travel to expand our minds. Of course, the most dangerous animal in Africa is the hippo. More people are killed by hippos than anything else. Whether it's one state over. I was looking for a longer treatment, like 90 days, six months, and my treatment plan was to go hike the Appalachian Trail. Or halfway around the globe. This fantastic high desert, you watch the sky at night, so you just see the Milky Way and shooting stars. If the world's a book, why only read one page? I'm Elizabeth Hill, and you're listening to a WAMC Northeast Public Radio production. This is Postcards from the Road. Support for Postcards from the Road comes from CEFQ, serving banking, insurance, and investment needs with more than 30 branches across the greater capital region. Also offering assistance to local nonprofit organizations through CEFQ's community support program. CEFQ. Changing lives every day. Sefq.com. Coffee's origins can be traced back to the Arabian Peninsula in the Middle East. European travelers brought back stories of an unusual dark black beverage, and by the 17th century, coffee had made its way across most of Europe. By the mid-1600s, the New World had its first taste. Coffee houses rapidly began to appear, although tea continued to be the favored drink in the colonies, until 1773, after the notorious Boston Tea Party. King George III placed a heavy tax on tea, and that caused colonists to revolt. And thus, the American drinking preference would change to coffee for the decades to follow. Dean's Beans Organic Coffee Company, located in Massachusetts, was founded by Dean Sycon in 1993. The company works to provide quality specialty coffee as a vehicle for positive social, economic, and environmental change throughout Asia, Africa, and the Americas. Saikon realized his mission in the 80s and now travels the world to obtain fair trade coffee beans to roast for coffee lovers across the U.S. In 1988, I was asked to help create the very first nonprofit development organization in the world of coffee because I had a background in law, indigenous rights, and international development. I was not a coffee guy. In setting that up, Coffee Kids, and then creating programs in different countries, I came to understand the problems of coffee producers, and I thought the nonprofit model is not going to really address these issues. These are industry-specific issues. How can the coffee industry help change poverty? How can it create a better environment? You know, and so I set off on my quest in 1993 to create a company that could model how coffee companies could be involved in serious social, economic, and ecological change at the third world source. And it's 26 years and we're still cranking. Could you possibly describe the cycle of production and distribution from farmer to the consumer? Coffee grows um, 30 degrees north and south of the equator between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. So the seasons for coffee are pretty steady. They tend to be harvested somewhere between November and February, March. They're processed in-country, shipped, and we get most of our coffees from August on. 
So that's the main cycle. There's some variations depending on how high the altitude, that would be a later production, or how dry the area, it might, things might ripen earlier, but that's the basics. So pretty much all coffee comes out during that period of time, our, our uh, fall and winter. Can you go into a little bit of detail of shade-grown and no CO2 coffee that you guys offer? Right. Shade-grown, you know, there's sort of a casual understanding of shade-grown, and then there's some very scientific explanations of shade-grown. So the shade-grown definition that's used by Rainforest Alliance, for example, is much, much looser than the shade-grown definition used by the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. Unfortunately, there's no legal definition of shade-grown, much like all-natural, so people are free to say what they want, and they do. So shade-grown is one thing, and it, and it really requires about 60% of the field where the coffee is grown to also have um, shade trees, and most likely indigenous hardwood shade trees, not eucalyptus or uh, pine or other imported trees, but trees that really embed into the ecosystem and make a difference for the birds, for the soil, for the climate. That's shade grown. Our No CO2 was a project we started in 2003 in Peru. We, we traced all the carbon that is created from the planting, harvesting, processing, shipping, roasting, distribution, and home brewing of coffee. And we said, well, how can we offset that? And we looked at creating native hardwood forests in the coffee villages we were working in in Peru. And we realized, I think the calculation was a pound of coffee throughout that chain creates 17 pounds of carbon. And then we said, okay, well, what would it take to offset 17 pounds of carbon? And working with the World Resource Institute and some other organizations, we found that native hardwood trees in Peru two native hardwood trees could offset that 17 pounds once they had grown about two or three years. So that was our model. So we started planting hardwood trees to offset the entire supply chain of carbon, soup to nuts, from the field to the cup. And what happened was that program got so big over time that not only did it neutralize the carbon from our Peruvian coffee, but it neutralized the carbon from our entire production. So that's that's our no CO2. It's a real flagship coffee for us. And not only are you guys working to improve the environment, but you're also working to make sure that fair trade remains a high standard in the coffee industry. Can you talk about your fair trade growers across the world? Fair trade requires things on both sides of the chain. At the farmer's end, it requires farmers to organize into democratic, transparent cooperatives which brings so many valuable benefits to the villages, everything from gender equity to financial literacy to opportunities for schooling and better pricing for the coffee. It's really great for disparate farmers who live up in these small villages in, in the mountains to band together and collectively attack the market as, as a co-op. Very powerful. On our side, we're required, if we're dealing with fair trade cooperatives, we're required to pay at a minimum, the fair trade minimum, which for organics is $1.91 a pound. It doesn't sound like much, but that's the minimum, which means when the world market price goes below $1.91 a pound, 
we fair traders agree we will never pay less than that. So right now, today, the uh, world coffee market price is a dollar four. It's incredibly low. And that's one of the reasons there are so many people coming to our southern border. This is a totally unknown story that I've been trying to get out there. A lot of the people coming to the Mexican border are coffee farmers who've been thrown off their land or can't make a living because the price of coffee for the last year and a half has plummeted and it's so low. So until coffee companies are willing to pay fair trade or reasonable prices for their coffee, this thing is going to continue. That's a little aside, okay, as far as the pricing goes. On the other hand, most of us in the, in the fair trade world, the serious fair traders, always pay more than the minimum. So I'll give you an example. We just bought a container of Sumatran coffee from Indonesia, and we paid $3.26 a pound for it, not $1.91. We just bought a Colombian container, and it was two eighty-five. So it's a negotiation between us and the farmers what that price is going to be. And our philosophy is buy high, sell low. So we try to pay the farmers as much as we can and still stay afloat and then try to charge the consumer as little as we can so that fair trade coffee is not limited to people with a lot of means. Anybody can get out there and buy our coffee because it's reasonably priced. So we're we're a bit of a an outlier in the coffee world, but that's how we take our values and manifest them in the marketplace. How do you find the coffee that you guys offer? Well, you know, I I grew up on Indiana Jones and I love to travel and I love different cultures. So the opportunity to travel and go up into mountains and meet communities that are really off the grid, that's, that's my passion. So there are many ways to meet new coffee communities. One, there's an annual coffee conference every year, and new groups come to it all the time and, and come with their samples and say, please try our coffee. And if we try it and like it, then maybe we arrange a visit. Two, there are activist groups in a lot of the countries we work in, uh, social activist groups or health groups or political groups who say, hey, you know, Dean, we have this group in in Cauca, Colombia, that's a really well-organized co-op, and they, they sure could use some good sales. They're doing some great work in their community. Would you like to visit them? I just came back from one of those groups um, earlier this year. So, uh, I'm sorry, late last year. So those are kind of different ways of doing it. And because I've been involved in coffee in this way since 1988, I'm pretty well known. So I get a lot of emails from indigenous right groups or I've worked with in the past who will say, hey, Dean, will you, will you come and visit us in Timor or in Papua New Guinea? And uh, if I can and if it looks like it's going to be possible, then we'll visit. And if I can't visit, we send interns from universities or or people who've graduated, we send them in our stead to meet with groups or assess our programs on the ground. So that's the way we can be in actually 13 countries at once. That's fantastic. A lot of fun. (laughs) Can you take us through one of your trips? Oh, sure. I'll take you through my last trip to Sumatra. So in Sumatra, there are a lot of problems in the coffee regions. Palm oil is a major problem in Sumatra because big multinational palm oil companies are buying up land, often illegally, throwing farmers off their land, tearing up the forest, deforestation, 
destroying endangered species habitat, and throwing the farmers off their land. So this is a major problem. So we looked at that and said, okay, how can we work together with our farmers to address all of the major issues involved? What are the issues? Endangered species management. There's orangutans, there's elephants, there's rhinos, there's even endangered bears that are unique to Sumatra. So without the habitat, those animals are even more endangered. So we created a program that combined teaching farmers about their land rights so they can get land title with teaching endangered species management techniques and also preserving land by planting native hardwoods that are endemic to that area that are the right ones to attract the birds, attract the animals, and collect carbon, too, for for global warming's sake. So we've put this thing together, and we started it about a year ago, and I went there a couple months ago, and we set up nurseries with native hardwoods that the farmers went into the forest and collected the seeds. We've got 5,000 seedlings now, and I'm going next month to start planting the seedlings to get dirty. We went and visited some elephant training grounds where semi-wild elephants are trained to go into the forest and take wild elephants and move them away from inhabited areas. And we went to orangutan preserves to see what we could do there. And we're, uh, we're funding training for rangers in those preserves as well as reforestation. So that's kind of how we sewed together that project. I spent 10 days on the ground in the field with the farmers, with the conservation rangers, doing what we do best. And that's just getting to know those communities and and figuring out ways that we can bring our resources from our sales of coffee back to do good work in the villages. That's a typical trip. And I could show you a picture of me with a 15-foot python. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So not only are you going abroad and bringing coffee back, but you also promote green beans where people can brew their own coffee at home. It's becoming a a, a big part of the coffee scene. Um, We started selling green beans to home roasters a couple of years ago, and now it's grown into about almost $200,000 of sales annually. And that's one pound of green beans, two pounds of green beans going out. So there's a lot of folks roasting at home. It saves them money because green beans are a lot cheaper than uh, roasted coffee. But also, you know, we're Americans. We like to do things. So uh, anybody who likes to barbecue would love to roast their own coffee. What makes coffee from each region different, say, Colombia versus Ethiopia? There are a lot of factors. It starts in the field, and the, the primary quality is altitude. Quite simply, the higher the bean, the better the bean. Why? Because higher beans have to survive in colder nights and harsher climates, which means that structurally they have to be uh, more robust, which means they roast better because a robust bean will hold its qualities deeper into a, into a roast so you can play with it into different uh, levels of roasting. So that's the first factor. Soil is important. You know, the kind of soil you have in Ethiopia and Kenya is very different from the soil in Latin America, different again from the soil in Southeast Asia or the Pacific. Volcanic soils are better than sandy soils. So there's a lot of that kind of dynamism in what makes for a great bean. But then there's processing. So everybody knows that African coffees are very acidic. People think, oh, well, it must be the bean. It's not. It's the way it's processed. Because in Africa, 
they may take four days to get that bean processed, where in Latin America it may only take a day. That means that the coffee has less time to ferment, which means it's not as acidic. So the reason African coffees are so acidic is the farmer brings it in and leaves it at the gate of the processing plant. They may not get to it for two days. In Latin America, boom, overnight, because of the sophistication of the coffee industry, even in remote villages, people know you've got to process this coffee right away to control its acidity. So that's the second phase. You know, First is the environment. Second is the processing by the farmer. And the third is the roasting. You can take a great bean and make it a terrible cup of coffee. You can make a mediocre bean and turn it into a great cup of coffee by the roasting. So there you go. Then, of course, it's the home brewing. You know, when you get that coffee at home, if you don't put enough coffee in or you grind it too coarsely, you may get weak coffee. Then you say, oh, this is a lousy cup of coffee. No, it's a great cup of coffee that you messed it up at the home. (laughs) So, yeah, a lot of factors go into a good cup of coffee. And do you have a favorite in what you offer? Well, I do, but it's hard for me to differentiate between what's my favorite taste in a cup and what's my favorite community to work with, you know, because to me it's the whole package. I love Indonesian coffees or Asian coffees. So my two favorite coffees are Sumatran, which is also the most popular organic coffee in the world, and the coffee from East Timor. East Timor is this little island at the far end of the Indonesian archipelago. It's only been an independent country since 2006. We've been working there that whole time. Very small communities up in the mountains. The older people speak Portuguese. The younger people speak Indonesian. So it's a very interesting place to work. And um, the coffee is just full-bodied chocolatey tasting, really, really tasty. But it, but it's not a big production out of Beast Timor. Since we've been working directly with one village for about eight years now, we get their total output. It's very hard to find Timorese coffee in the United States, but we've had it for eight years, and it's really wonderful stuff. You guys also offer you can design your own blend? Yeah, that's a feature we started about 15 years ago. And what it is, is you go on the website and you say, hmm, I like a coffee that's got a little body in it. So you click a coffee that has a I uh, symbol for body. I don't like acidity. I'm going to drop the acid in that. Boom, there you go. And so you ultimately design by taking all of our beans you, you design your own cup. And as you're designing the coffee, it shows you what the qualities of your cup are. When you get it where you want it, you press roast it, and uh, you can then write out your label. So it could be mom's birthday blend or my favorite combination or Dean's roast or whatever. And uh, that shows up at your door with your, with your pound of coffee with your label on it. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? You know, coffee is, is such a multifaceted world, and it's unfortunate right now that at this time, with, with climate change, with economic crises around the world, that the industry is not really stepping up to the plate like it should. A lot of coffee companies still rely on generic and bogus marketing about the wonderful relationship they have with their farmers and the quality of the coffee and the environment. And there's no regulation of that sort of thing. So there's a lot of puffery, as as we lawyers like to say. 
which is one way of saying misleading, you know, misleading advertising. And it's sad because this isn't like my washing machine gets clothes cleaner than your washing machine. We expect that in advertising. But when you're saying buy my coffee and the farmers are happy and the environment is taken care of and that's not true, that's really doing some damage. Uh, and, and also customers then think, oh, well, those problems are solved, so I don't have to think about it anymore. So it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting time in the coffee industry. We have a lot of soul searching to do about how we behave in the marketplace because at the end of the day, we get a great cup of coffee, but farmers are really, really hurting. For more information on Dean's Beans products and where you can buy them, visit deansbeans.com. And tune in later this season when we talk to the Whistling Kettle about tea around the world. Postcards from the Road is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I'm your host and producer, Elizabeth Hill. Our theme music is Cherry Blossom Wonders by Kevin McLeod. And as always, if you like what you hear, subscribe on your audio app of choice. Visit wamcpodcasts.org for more information. If you would like to share your travel story with WAMC, email us at postcards at wamc.org.